I want to welcome everybody back. Uh, namesake of mine, Doug Wood. He's partner with the global law firm Reed Smith in New York, specializing in advertising and marketing law for over 35 years. Oh my God, I want to hear the stories from you <laughs> from back in the day. We'll save that for later. Um, he writes novels in which he, in, in which he kills many people. Really? You or the characters? The characters do. I figured as much. Uh, and parental advice books. Okay. Um, kid, kill, yeah. Uh, what's the title of your parent? What's the title of your parenting address book or your? Uh, hundred one things I want to say. Hundred hundred one things I want to yes, say to my three kids. Okay. Give me one that I can tell my seven. Well, to my so. daughter, it was boys or pigs. <laughs> okay. What's one that I can? And it tell gets my a little book? more, you know, as it goes on. Okay, I'm I'm buying that book. Available on Amazon. All right, I'm buying it. Uh, but he's been with Worldwide Partners for over 20 years. Without further ado, please welcome Doug Thanks. Wood. Thanks, Doug. Thank you. So let me get the, the dummy clicker so I didn't, even I won't screw this clicker up, I think. Well, welcome, everybody, and thank you for having me again. It's, uh, I think it's been a couple of years or so since I spoke to you, and, and I want to go through a quick update on some issues that you need to be concerned about, and, and hopefully, hopefully in the end, I think there's an opportunity uh, for this uh, partnership to, to take a look at in the marketplace as things begin to unfold. So we're going to talk about employment law, some of the union issues, FTC disclosures, password uh, sharing, and then the, uh, the largest topic I want to talk about is media transparency, what you've been reading about in the marketplace going on. That's where I think the opportunity lies. Uh, let's take a quick uh, walk through the uh, Fair, uh, Fair Labor Standards Act. I, a lot of people uh, are not aware that they made some changes and nuances in it in the last couple of years that you need to be aware of. Uh, tighten some of the rules. Uh, the employees must be paid at a statutory minimum wage. That's a floor. It's not a ceiling, uh, as any employee will tell you. Uh, it's $7.25 an hour. Uh, more importantly, you need to track their hours. A lot of people say, okay, you know, you're, you're a salaried employee. I'm not going to track your hours. And lo and behold, it's determined that they're not a salaried employee, that they're not exempt employees, and you can't track the hours to pay their overtime and the like. So you've got you've to have systems in place to track hours. If you work with any kind of unions, you may have different requirements for a union. It's not likely that any of you have union employees, but if you do, that's a different situation. Uh, who's covered? And this is probably the easiest way to do it. All employees. So you, you, you default to the, to the position that everyone who works for you is an employee and is covered unless you can find an exemption for them under the FSLA. The exemptions are independent contracts. So we're going to talk about that in particular. Volunteers, you know, if you do pro bono work or whatever, and you get some volunteers to work with you, they're not covered as employees. Trainees, you can do special things with trainees in that context as long as you don't get too abusive about what a trainee is. You, know, you can't have trainees for three or four years. They, sooner or later they get trained and they're no longer trainees. Uh, and, and you have to look very carefully at this because some states have other rules themselves that they overrule uh, these kinds of uh, issues. Overtime. On the overtime, again, I want to just sort of stress this because this is where a lot of agencies we see do get burned on overtime because they, they not only do they fail to, to track the hours, but each work week has to stand alone. Uh, they have to get a time and a half for anything over 40 hours a week. And you can't average any, any weeks or any days. So if someone works six hours on Monday and 10 hours on, on Tuesday, they get two hours of overtime. You can't say, well, you should have worked eight hours yesterday. You didn't work eight hours, so I'm going to dock you to two hours of overtime on Tuesday. Well, you can't combine any of that. Each day stands alone, eight hours. Anything in excess of eight hours has to be paid a time and a half. And that's where we see a lot of, of, 
of innocent mistakes made uh, by some employers. Who's exempt? And there are exempt folks who don't have to be paid, obviously, on an hourly basis, who you don't have to uh, uh, worry about tracking hours or otherwise. And those are executives. And I'll go sort of the criteria of each of these. People in administration, so-called professionals, and computer-related. These are the exempt category. It used to be much vaguer and sort of smushier than that. But now it's these four categories are considered the exempt categories. So what's a, an executive exemption? Their primary duty is the management of the enterprise. It's pretty simple to know who the executives are. You guys are the executives. Uh, they regularly direct work for at least two or more people. So if you're a one-man shop, I'm not sure what you are. You know, maybe you're both, you can pay yourself a salary, you can pay yourself a, a wage, whatever you want to do. And they have to have the authority to hire and fire. And that's one of the areas that is, is a bit problematic in this new exemption discussion by the FSLA. What do you mean by hire and fire? Not everybody has the right to hire, not everybody has the right to fire. You know, so you got, there's, there's a little bit of a, of a gray area in that context. So I think the right, right uh, approach to that is to say that it's not only the right to hire or fire, but to have an actual influence, a very material influence on the hiring and firing of individuals. Administrative exemption, you know, it's not your assistant. That's not administration. Administration is the running of the operations. It's something that really involves performance of office and not manual work that's directly related to the management policies or generally business operations. So your, your secretary, your office assistant, your, 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 your anybody else, your, your receptionist, they are not administrative uh, personnel and they're not exempt. And they customarily and regularly exercise some kind of di discretion and independent judgment. You know, so if, if uh, you know, one of the sort of the great debates we have is suppose I'm the CEO of a company and I have an administrative assistant uh, who, who he or she schedules me all day long, she runs my calendar, uh, she screens every single call, no one can get to me unless they go through him or her, is that, a, is that an administrative exemption? Probably not. Probably not. Uh, because that's really uh, not the kind of thing that this is looking for, even though he or she may you know, exercise discretion, independent judgment on how they, they might schedule that CEO. Uh, tests for professional exemptions. Professional exemptions uh, are people who are in the performance of their work require knowledge of an advanced type or field of science or technology. Uh, that sort of, sort of uh, merges in with some of the, the computer stuff uh, that I'll talk about in a second. But people who have an acquired skill, that is not just something that is, is, is you know, sort of the run of the mill in the, in the institution. So if you brought in auditors, people, CPAs, lawyers, and those types, they're the, kind, they're the, they're the professional exemption where they're, no long, they're, they're, they're considered uh, exempt employees. Some, one of the standards that the FSLA says is that it requires invention, imagination, originality, and talent in a recognized field of artistic and creative endeavor. I think the creative directors kind of stuck that one in there to make sure that they can be uh, exempt employees, uh, although they may want not to be exempt employees. But the question becomes, well, what about a copywriter? What about a first-year copywriter? Are they uh, you know, considered a professional exemption? I think that that's doubtful. And that could be problematic in some states where they're trying to raise revenues from taxes and the like. And this is one of the areas where they might try to use a tax. So the new people coming in, just because they might be in a in an area within an agency that, is, that requires invention, imagination, originality, or talent, the question is really not, are they senior enough to really qualify in that context? That's a fight that will be had in the future. On computer-related occupation, uh, that's really what, exactly what it says. That's the, the fourth exemption. That's the design, the development, documentations, analysis, et cetera, et cetera. It is not your help desk. So it's not the person you call at the help desk who is a geek and knows the nerd and knows all this stuff inside out. That is an employee that is, is not exempt. 
exempt employees or if you have somebody who's really doing the programming for you and running your systems, that would be an exempt employee. So you can see that all of this stuff on the FSLA is not black and white. Uh, there are vagaries in there and issues that you need to look at. The most important thing you need to do is have job descriptions. And to the extent you have job descriptions that parrot a lot of what the FL, FL, F, FLSA says, then you're at least one step in the right direction that the people acknowledge. That's what their job description is. Very often there are no job descriptions in this business. You know, you're either your creative director or a copywriter or an account manager or whatever it is. There's really no description. Uh, so if you want to make sure that you get the folks into the exempt status, then you want to have job descriptions as much as possible. So, you know, in terms of your freelancers now, you know, that's where a lot of people get into trouble. Instead of hiring people as employees, they hire them on a project basis as a freelancer. And they give them a 1099, and lo and behold, that person comes in, and they're full time. They are there for the six weeks of the project. They're no place else. They're sitting at a desk. They sometimes even get business cards. They get assigned phone numbers. They get all these indicia of what an employee is. The more indicia you give them of, of being an employee, the more likely it is that they're going to be an employee. See, oh, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck kind of thing. So clients often ask, was well, there an easy way to visualize this, to figure this out? And this is the best I could come up with. On, on, on the left is a gerbil. On the right is a rat. Now think of this in the context of care and feeding of these two animals. The gerbil cannot survive without you. You have to feed it, you have to exercise it, you have to coddle it, you have to make it your pet. The rat, on the other hand, couldn't give a damn about you. If you didn't feed it, it's going to find someplace else to feed. It's going to do something else on its own. It is going to survive despite whatever you do with it. The gerbil is your employee. The rat is your independent contractor. And what you need to think of it in that kind of context might be helpful, made a little easier for you to understand the differences between employees and, uh, and uh, independent contractors. They are cute. Even the rat's cute a little bit, but whatever. How many of you produce commercials that, are, that use union talent and do union commercial productions? Anybody out there? How many of you? number of you? Uh, there's a few things that uh, one of the jobs I have is I'm the industry's chief negotiator against SAG and AFTRA and the American Federation of Musicians, and I negotiate the, the collective bargaining agreement every three years. We just got through doing it in, in uh, 2000, uh, from earlier this year, from February to April 3rd. We had six weeks of intense negotiations, uh, lots of things going on. I thought we were going to have a strike. We averted it in the end. Uh, some of the union members were actually shoving some of my team around. Someone was actually at a fist fight at one point. So, you know, just because they're actors doesn't mean that they're not, you know, you know real tough union people at times. <clears throat> but in any event, uh, we did settle, uh, and we got some real advances that you all need to consider if you're going to be doing union commercials. The most important ones are these so-called uh, waivers for non-professionals. I remember when I first started the negotiations uh, this last session, I made the mistake of calling this the waiver for real people. Because I, you know, real people are the people you really want to hire. Well, the actors got all angry with me there, saying, you know, we're real people too. So, okay, fine, you're real people too. So then we'll call it non-professionals. We won't call it. Uh, and I wanted to get into the whole thing about whether they're professional or not, but I, I decided I didn't want to get into any further trouble. But the biggest one is the second one, is the waiver for non-professional endorsers. Uh, this was a huge breakthrough in the negotiations. Look, think of the drug ad. You know, where you have a person who's actually taken the drug and they're their spouse might be with them, their doctor's in the background. It's part of that little community uh, that, that actually uh, uh, participated in, in whatever that drug was. In the past, you had to pay all of them the union rates. Now you don't have to pay them anything. You can pay them a dollar. As long as they're the real people, the real doctor, the real spouse, the real patient. 
This is huge. If you're in the pharma business, this is huge. Now, it doesn't just apply to pharma. It applies to anything else. In the auto business, you want to get testimonials from real people about they really, their actual experience with the cars, and you want to put the dealer there, the dealer owner, or whatever it might be. Those people can all now be exempt from the union code, completely exempt. So you don't have to pay them any of the union wages. That's one that I think uh, is probably the biggest win uh, we got. And uh, you can call them real people if you like to, but they're technically non-professionals. Uh, the, the, the waiver, uh, remember, however, requires these non-professionals, people who have not acted before. There's also uh, uh, some developments in the digital field that might be of interest to some of you, two in particular. There's a shorter period for a four-week cycle. That's not all that important, but the two things that are important is streaming. Streaming used to re uh, require additional fees to the talent uh, by, uh, by under the union code. That is now gone. Simulcasting and streaming is now does not require any further fees. The other one we like a lot is the social media waiver. You can now, for one session fee, produce as many commercials as you want for use on a social media platform. And the residual you pay is only 15%. So it's really cheap. So when you want to do a lot of stuff and you want to sort of you know, do 10 or 12 or whatever the number is, uh, little snippets, 5 seconds, 10 seconds, whatever it is, for all the media, social media platforms, it would be cost prohibitive under the, the older code. Now it is actually competitive in the marketplace. Obviously, none of these things apply when you're doing non-union. So, so there's, an, there's a, a concept out there known as financial core. Uh, financial core, if you're, you're, if you're a non-union non -union house, most of you are, and you want to hire a union performer, someone who is you know, rank and file and, and raises the flag, one of the ways you can get around it is so-called financial core. <clears throat> Robert De Niro is not financial core. He will never do a commercial that is not a union commercial. Eric Estrada, on the other hand, is financial core. He'll do anything. He, he's a real person, I guess, or whatever he is, uh, professional. And so he will work under union, not under union, whatever it is. It's an election an actor can make, which basically says, I will be a member of the union. I will pay my dues, but you can't do anything to me, and I don't have any vote. Well, there's 140,000 actors who vote. Who cares whether you've got a vote in 140,000? So he doesn't care, and he makes some money on both union and non-union productions. You're not going to get any endorsements about him from Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro doesn't like people who do financial core. But that's another thing. So if you get running into uh, using actors and you determine whether or not uh, you can use them and without getting them in trouble, you can think about financial core. Now, understand if you're a non-signatory shop, you have zero obligations of the union code. You can hire anybody you want or anybody who wants to work for you. And there's no culpability on you. But they might get in trouble if they're not financial core. <clears throat> another thing that folks... Uh, get themselves into trouble for under the union collective bargaining aspects is one thing that it, it, it makes you wonder who thinks these rules up. But it's an unfair labor practice for an agency to have a subsidiary that's a signatory and a subsidiary that's a non-signatory, sometimes called double-breasting, where you have, a, you know, you, you put your union stuff in the sub that's the signatory and you put your non-union stuff in the sub that's a non-sig. That's illegal. But the one on the right where the agency uses a third-party signatory most of the talent payroll services have them. That's legal. So if someone wants to explain the logic of that to me, I would love to hear it someday. But as they say, it's the National Labor Relations Act, not the National Management Relations Act. So its whole purpose is to protect labor and to protect the interests of the unions, which was necessary uh, years ago and still is necessary today. So, so if, you're, if you're engaging or if you hear discussions about here's a way that we can get around it, the one on the, on, on the left does not work. That is an uh, that is a uh, unfair labor practice. Okay, any questions on unions? 
recently you may have read where the FTC is taking a look at, Federal Trade Commission is taking a look at the kinds of disclosures you need to have in advertising. They're getting a little crazy. Uh, the chairman of the FTC has said that she believes that maybe you need to do a lot more copy testing. Maybe you need to do a lot more focus groups. Maybe you need to do a lot more research on what the net impression is of your advertising. As if you don't already have enough rules on how you judge what your advertising says. It says what it says. If you want to, you, you, you do focus groups, you do research, but she wants more. She wants empirical testing is what she's talking about. There's a big resistance on this at the, at the Hill. There's a lot of lobbying going on to prevent this stuff. And it's likely to, to, to be a tempest in a teapot and not go further. But what it does is it creates a, a lot of confusion. It feeds the, it feeds the uh, coffers of class action attorneys. It gets a lot of people talking about things. And it's just problematic. And the FTC has, in the last few years, gone off the deep end of having workshops, they call them. Workshops where they invited all these, these, these pundits to talk about how evil you are and how you need to be straightened out. And they never let you stand there and say anything. If you look at any of these panels that you've seen in the FTC workshops, in the last three years, you won't see anybody from your industry represented in any significant way. It's all the professors, it's the, it's the consumerists, it's everybody else who's there to tell the FTC about the need that they have to, that they have to buckle down and really come down on, on top of you. One of the areas where they are taking a look at is in testimonies and endorsements. You know, and whether or not there is a material connection between the advertiser and the person who is giving the testimonial. That used to be pretty simple back in the day because you know, you have to pay them or whatever. But now with digital and, and, and crowdsourcing and all the other things that we see in the marketplace, this is a much more difficult issue. Here are some of the things that the FTC lists as being indicia of a material connection, which would require you to disclose that this person is getting this benefit from you in order to be the blogger, in order to be the, the, the crowdsource individual, in order to be whatever they're doing in the marketplace that is helping out your client. You've got to disclose that in this context. So, so, you know, you, the, this list will be available to you on the, on the handout when you get it, but, so there's no need to write them down even if you wanted to. But, but the point is that the FTC is, is getting very strict about making sure the consumer out there, because of the influence of social media, the impact of social media in that conversation that one of the speakers was talking about before, is a conversation that is transparent. That the person knows where this person's conversation is coming from and knows that they're not being influenced in any manner, shape, or form. Examples of where uh, the FTC, you know, the FTC can't stop on, on you know, just one or two pages. They, they, have, they, they just go on ad nauseum and give all sorts of examples. But here are some of the examples they give. Uh, you know, an employee who writes a review for their company's products. That might seem obvious, but, but what if the, the, it's an unauthorized review? What, what are you supposed to do then? Are you supposed to go and discipline the employee? Are you supposed to insist that the employee change their, their entry about it or whatever? The answer is yes. You have to do something about it because you can't take the benefit without the, without the obligation. Street team members who go out and give points to folks and actors who are cast in that way, the real people again situation. So, so you know, there are a lot of examples of where you're not currently uh, perhaps giving disclosures that you're going to have to in the future. The FTC sent out about 20 warning letters to some advertisers the last few months saying you know, that's how they start. They send out warning letters and they say, you know, you haven't done this right, so start doing it right. And then the next one is not a warning letter. You know, so I, I think it's it's relatively safe to say that that in response to this big disclosure debate that they opened up, that the FTC is likely to do something with endorsements and, and testimonials in the next uh, half a year or so. Passwords. We, you know, the, you know, the, um, this visual really tells it. I, I couldn't find a better visual. Uh, you know, it, it, we share passwords all the time, don't we? We share them with people in our family. If you've got HBO to go, 
and your daughter or son is out at college and they want to watch HBO, you say, hey, sure, here's my password, go ahead and watch it. Or you share them in other ways in the, in the office with someone, you have a subscription to, say, the Wall Street Journal, and that requires a password to get in, and then there's an article that somebody wants to read, and they go, can I have your password? I want to read that Wall Street Journal article. That's computer fraud. That is a crime. That is no different, that's no different than some of you may have remembered back in the day when the Computer Software Alliance, you know, which was members were Apple and Microsoft and, and all these, these folks, the Software Alliance, went around and checked on whether or not you had a multiple licenses depending upon how many people used a particular program in your facility. Well, that's not how programs work anymore. They're cloud-based. You don't get physical copies. You, don't really get, you get enterprise licenses or whatever it might be, but it's all cloud-based. That is just as much theft by sharing passwords as it is by sharing copies of software under a limited license. The difference now is they've sent some people to jail on sharing passwords. So, so if you're, if, <laughs> the best advice I can keep you so that you don't have to, you can go past that, that stop on Monopoly and not go to jail and collect your money is to make sure your shop isn't fooling around with passwords. Uh, you know, if someone wants to share your password, say no. You know, go in yourself, tell them what the article says, and be careful because if you photocopy that article and then give it to them, you've now infringed a copyright. You know, so, so you, you have to be careful about exactly what you do. There's a lot of intellectual property rights that are violated every single day. And are you going to get caught? No. The likelihood you're going to get caught is very little. But that's not solace to the guy who right now is serving two years in prison because he shared his password. You know, so, so let's you know, be careful about, about that whole area. Now let me spend the, the balance of my time on something that I think is really the biggest issue we're facing in this industry right now, and that's all about transparency. And that's the word of the day. Everybody's saying you've got to be transparent here, transparent there. Well, th there's no transparency of any real sort uh, in some areas of this business, and it's going to change. It all started on uh, June 7th when the ANA released a report by K2 Intelligence uh, that resulted in a upheaval uh, that was originally begun by a gentleman named John Mandel. John Mandel was the former CEO of Mediacom, one of the large WPP uh, media buying agencies. And about a year or so ago, in, a, in an epiphany, he got up on a stage at an industry conference and just leveled the media buying industry, saying they were engaging in fraud, misappropriation, they were hiding monies, they were not passing them on to their advertisers, and they were making many, many millions, if not billions, of dollars as an industry uh, defrauding their clients. I remember hearing that speech because I was at the conference and sitting in the back saying, this guy's nuts. This guy's going to get sued by everybody out there because he is, it's libelous. Unless it's true, it's libelous per se. You can't accuse somebody of a crime and expect to, not get, expect to get away with it if it isn't true because that's libel per se. So, okay, he says all this. There was upheaval. The forays got all angry about it. The ANA actually said they were sorry. They didn't know what he was going to say. That's it. Not a, he didn't get a single lawyer's letter. He didn't get a lawsuit. He didn't get anything. So I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's really interesting. This is not just smoke. This guy may have something to think about and talk about. So the ANA decided to take a deeper dive in that and they hired K2 Intelligence. K2 Intelligence, some of you may remember the name Kroll. Kroll was a, you know, a very storied investigative firm, former FBI, CIA, prosecutors and the like. That's who K2 Intelligence is now. It's the successor to Kroll. And they did an eight-month study involving interviewing over 150 people throughout every level of the industry, 
all on an anonymous basis. And their report, if you haven't read the K2 report, it's available on the ANA website. It's like the bonfires of the vanity. You really got to read it uh, to really understand all of the schemes that are allegedly used by the media buying agencies, uh, that the big, you know, the ones that are owned by the holding companies, the big ones, uh, in order to, to not pass the monies on to their advertisers. Even though contracts may say you can't take any rebates or incentives, there are lots of ways that they move the money around and, and they do it in, in exchange for time. They do it, uh, they do it in exchange for consulting contracts. They do it in exchange for technology contracts. They do it all sorts of different ways that are all explained in the K2 intelligence report. Following up on that report, the ANA came out with a, a, um, a white paper on best practices that was co-authored by Ubiquity and Firm Decisions. You've probably heard of them, Firm Decisions. Uh, the guy who runs Firm Decisions was once described as the most hated man in advertising uh, because they only represent advertisers and they do audits that are not just straight, flat media audits. They are competitors. They have to do similar things. But the point being that they came out with a 50-plus page uh, best practices that included a lot, of, a lot of burdens to put on the advertiser as well as, as issues to put on the agencies. That contrasted quite drastically with the 4A's best practices uh, guidelines that were two pages. Uh, that had no audit rights, had no, no, no teeth to it. So as a result of this, we've had upheaval since June, uh, where advertisers are taking very serious looks at this issue of non-transparency. Uh, there are many advertisers at different stages of this, from, from reviewing their contracts and renegotiating their contracts, to instituting uh, audits. I know for a fact that there are some are very close to starting litigation against some of the media buying agencies. It, it's, it's, a, it's like dominoes, I, you know, my analogy to it. It's very much like dominoes and they're beginning to fall. Now, that, that whole, whole issue of the media buying transparency debate that's going on is now coupled by what we heard in the last couple of weeks, uh, the debacle at Dentsu. Dentsu admitted, and after an audit, they didn't willingly admit this, but an audit that was really precipitated by Toyota originally uh, to determine whether their digital media buys were properly, properly paid for, they discovered that they were not by many millions of dollars, and now apparently is over 100 Dentsu clients implicated in this who have overpaid for all of their uh, digital purchases. Then we saw Facebook, and it's called the walled garden of Facebook. Uh, Facebook does not allow you to use any analytic tools, third-party analytic tools, in terms of the materials that you get on, on your digital buys with Facebook. You have to use theirs, and, and it's either you take it or leave it kind of thing. Now, that, you know, that, that, this is all okay. I mean, it's not okay that the results are, are, are as uh, problematic as they are where Facebook admitted uh, that they, they didn't properly report some of the analytics. But, but the most interesting thing about this is that there is a, an organization as the Media Ratings Council. You may have heard of them. Uh, they were invented in the 1960s when Congress took a look at the way ratings were in television and radio and magazines and print and decided that it was a cesspool. There was a real serious problem with it. And either Congress had to step in or alternatively it had to be self-regulation. So that gave birth to the Media Ratings Council, which is a self-regulatory body that audits and certifies all media platforms and how they, they measure themselves to their ultimate buyers. Facebook refuses to participate in the MRC. Uh, they want nothing to do with it. So they are not certified or audited by the MRC. Nielsen is, Arbitron is, lots of other services are, but not Facebook. Dentsu does not have to be part of that. They theoretically could. If they wanted to be part of that, they could be members of the MRC and they could have their digital media buying and measuring uh, platforms uh, audited and certified by MRC. They do not. So I look at this, you know, I'm a cynical lawyer. It kind of has a little redundant, but I'm a cynical lawyer. Uh, and I look at this and I ask myself, you know, really, is it just Dentsu and Facebook we're dealing with here? 
Google has a walled garden too. You can't get any of their analytics except the analytics you give them. They get, give you, nothing else. How reliable is that? If Facebook wasn't reliable, how reliable is Google? Is Google? And then you ask yourself, you know, look, if Dentsu's doing it, think of, think of it, you know, I mean, I got to suspect, I got to wonder whether every other, all the other big media buying holding companies are, are having the same problems as Dentsu is having. It's that kind of suspicion that has grown up in the marketplace because of that K2 report. It may very well be that the other, the other five major holding companies don't do anything that Dentsu does, and it may very well be that Google does not make the same mistakes that Facebook does. But you, the, the level of trust in the marketplace has really deteriorated in the last, uh, um, the last eight months uh, to the point where I'm not even sure there's much at all left. Uh, and you know, and the other thing, this is not going to go away. The, the, strat the clear strategy of the media buying agencies, the big holding company media buying agencies, is to stall and hope this goes away. You know, I sat in on the uh, quarterly financial call at WPP a few weeks ago, which I listened to when I you know, fungled my way in. Anyway, so I, I, I'm listening to the call, and it went on for two hours. There wasn't a single mention of media transparency during that two hour. They just talked about the wonderful performance they have, and they do. There's a great article from an Australian publication that analyzes how is it they're doing so well when the commissions and the FTE contracts they have don't anyway come close to giving them these kinds of profits. And they do a pretty good analysis of that because they have a bunch of other revenue streams. And, you know, wake up. I mean, that's not a big surprise, is it? I mean, many years ago, they were beaten down by the advertisers to get lower and lower commissions and lower and lower hourly rates or whatever it was. Uh, so they had to find other revenue streams in order to get their ROI and their shareholder value. So they found them. They found them, according to K2 uh, uh, Intelligence, and, and whether or not they were appropriate or not remains to be debated. But the Department of Justice, for example, in the Southern District of New York, a, a U.S. attorney named Rebecca Mickeljohn is looking into this. She's already started a, a full-scale investigation on bid rigging. She sent some people away at Gray uh, 12 years ago for a, a reasonably long time. By, by showing that they were uh, rigging bids in production. So she's after somebody again, we don't know who, but she talks about the fact that she's issuing subpoenas, she's talking to a lot of people about bid rigging again. And when this K2 report came out, she gave me a call, because I first met her at a conference I had her speak at back when she was putting people away from Gray, and I had her speak at a conference scheduled to live in daylight, said everybody, the kinds of notes and body language in that room was really something. But anyway, so we put that aside. So she just calls me out of the blue and says, I read that K2 report with great interest, Right now, uh, Doug, it looks like, looks like it's just a competitive problem. But if I find out that there is collusion among the holding companies, if I find out that there are wholesale misrepresentations by the, by the holding companies, then I might have a bigger interest in this. So just so you know, I'm taking a look at it. The Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, uh, is looking at this. Why? Because there's no way they're not, because in 2004, they looked at IPG, who failed to pay uh, foreign rebates to U.S. clients and forced them to reverse about $350 million on their books and pay it back to their clients, in addition to a fine at the SEC. So the SEC knows of this. The, the, the K2 report essentially says that whatever you discovered that IPG did back in 2004, they're all doing it now. So the SEC cannot ignore this. They won't. There's also Sarbanes-Oxley. You've heard that, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley is a word thrown around all the time. It essentially means that after Enron, Public companies have to take measures to ensure that they have, they have measures in place that will prevent economic fraud. Now, for the most part, um, you know, the nickels and dimes of economic fraud aren't really a concern under Sarbanes-Oxley. 
But when you look at the advertisers who spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year under their contracts and, and, and ask, what kind of accountability does this media buying have? If you look at most companies, the, 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 the most aggressive audit they do of media buying is to match invoices. They don't do things that follow the money. And when you've got different subsidiaries, I did a deal, we represent media platforms. We don't represent any of the holding companies and any of the media buying agencies by choice. Uh, but we do represent media platforms. And one of the media platforms I represent is, is a huge platform, and they have pieces of all over the place in the industry, including outdoor. So, so this media platform calls me up one day and says, Doug, there's this strange thing going on. This happened maybe two months ago. Uh, and I said, okay, what? And he said, well, the media, the media subsidiary, the outdoor media buying subsidiary that we've been dealing with came to us out of the blue and said, we no longer need the cash rebate. I said, what do you mean? You were paying them a cash rebate? Yeah. Oh, well, they all deny they get cash rebates. Well, we were paying them. I said, well, that proves to me that that check never went back to the advertiser. Okay, so they, they wanted to stop paying the cash rebate. But, but I said, okay, that's great. And now you're not being extorted by, by the media buying agency with respect to that you know, kickback. And they said, well, no, it's not quite that easy, Doug. They want us to, they're insisting that we talk to another subsidiary of, of this same holding company who's got this great deal where they're expected to, uh, for us to sell them our outdoor space at a 66% discount that strangely will ultimately be the equivalent of the rebate that we used to pay in cash. So now let's assume that you're an advertiser and you're using the outdoor uh, agency subsidiary uh, that you were getting the cash rebate. Well, you weren't getting it, but was taking the cash rebate. And you did an audit of that agency now that the credit is over another subsidiary. You would never see it. This is where you have to read the K2 report to see how they move the money. It's fascinating. The Internal Revenue Service. Uh, there are allegations in the K2 report that not only do they do the media buying agencies within the holding companies move the money from different agencies and park at different places so that an audit trail cannot properly uh, be, uh, be discovered, they're also sending it overseas because they got subsidiaries everywhere. So their subsidiary, their media buying subsidiary in Spain uh, that's dealing with you know, an, a global agency is telling the, the, the global media platforms we want you to send all the money or the credits or the, or the free time or the, or the consulting agreement or the, or the technology payments or whatever it might be to our subsidiary in Spain. That's money laundering, if that's in fact what's going on. You cannot not state income where it's supposed to be. So that's also a foreign corrupt practice. That's where the SEC and the Department of Justice might have an interest in it as well. So this is not going to go away. Attorneys general are starting to look at this. You know, the funny thing was there was a sense of, of comfort because it didn't, a lot didn't hit the fan right away. There was some headlines and stuff. But let's remember, it was the summer. It was in the middle of June. People were on vacation. No one paying any attention. Since Labor Day, this has really started to build up steam. Congress. Uh, what's his name? Um, Schumer. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give you some anecdotes. So I've been working... You got the ball? Huh? You got, you got the ball, Mike? I got it. Oh, you got it? Okay, good. Great. So... So I've been working with three different media agencies uh, in the past three months. Yeah, so I've been working with three different media agencies in the past three months to try to close these agreements. And we've been trying to use the ANA best-in-class terms, as you would imagine. And you would not believe the pushback that we're getting in terms of agreeing to these terms. Oh, yeah. And, and so, you know... I wrote that, by the way, so it's my fault. But. Awesome, awesome. So, so as an example... <laughs> You go and ask them for parent audit clause rights, and they say nothing's going on here. And then you go and ask them to rep and warrant. There's have their CFO rep and warrant schedule two and three. 
so that they say there's no conflict of interest, there's no subsidiary benefiting from this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll get back to you on the red lines for that. So, so they don't, they're not really ready to come to the table well, and actually make this work. So, so we just have these open agreements now that are just sitting here, like open and wounded, and everyone's like looking at me going, you don't know how to close a contract. And I'm like, I know how to close a contract, I just don't want to close the wrong one. Right. So uh, what's your I, advice on that? Well, <laughs> it's a, that's a great question, and, and we're seeing, we're beginning to see movement. Um, uh, there's one large advertiser with about a $400 million media budget that has a signed deal that's very close to the ANA template. Um, that came about because the CEO of this global company called the CEO of, of the holding company and said, you get your butt into my office and either you're going to sign these things the way you promised you would in the RFP or you're fired. And, you know, that's a lot of money to not take. So they agreed to that. The interesting thing about it is that I was then negotiating with a different subsidiary of the same holding company for one of our, our large advertiser clients. And the lawyer uh, from the, uh, for the holding company says, oh, we don't, the, 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 this subsidiary, you know, we don't sign any of those guarantees. We don't sign any of those reps and warranties. We won't do these kinds of things. And I took him out, out of the office and I said, listen, I'll call him Bill. That's not his name. I'll say, I said, listen, Bill, I don't want to embarrass you in that room. Because another subsidiary, the same holding company, agreed to 80% of what we're asking. So I said, you, you can't. You can't tell them that. I said, well, Bill, why can't I tell them that? You know, because, well, because that's privileged information. I, it's privileged information that, that I'm not allowed to tell of one client how insincere you are. That's a privileged information? I don't think so, Bill. So, so we're in the middle of those kinds of very tense moments. And all I can say is, is hang as tough as you can. These things are important. At least, at least you want to do this under Sarbanes-Oxley because if it is later shown that you did nothing, and let's say the SEC goes nuts on this and they start to go after the advertisers as much as they go after the agencies. I mean, there's billions. I feel like Carl, you know, Carl Sagan. There's billions and billions of dollars involved here. This is, you know, it's, a, it's a market of $500, $600 billion a year. Group M claims to control over $100 million of that, $100 billion of that. They claim that one out of every three commercials you see on TV is one something they bought. That kind of media class, that kind of oligopoly, a huge market controlled by a handful of people, has serious antitrust issues with it. And, and whether or not they're colluding or whether they're not acting, you know, conscious, what's known as conscious parallelism, like gas prices, there's no collusion there. Everybody just kind of matches the prices. That's fine. But if they all got to agree and said, you know, we're going to keep it at $3, that's a different story. Uh, so I don't know. I'm not accusing them of any of that kind of stuff. Don't get me wrong. I'm not John Mandel. I'm not going to accuse anybody of crimes up here because I know better. But you got to hang tough. And what their strategy is, is to pit the, the uh, marketing group who's trying to get their job done, justifiably so. They got to get the ads out. They got to get them purchased. They got to get them measured. They got all of those things they've got to do. On the other side of the coin, they're trying to pit them against procurement, compliance, legal, who they, who they try to picture as their obstructionists. They're making it difficult for us. Uh, why can't you trust us? It's, everything's going to be okay. Well, I'm sorry, that is not an adequate answer. We had one CMO literally said to the general counsel of a company, what do I care if they're using some of my money to go to Tahiti on vacations? They're delivering what I need. And in a way, that's true. The, the media departments don't get measured on how good an audit is. They don't get measured on how much you squeeze into dollars. They get measured on what they deliver on the creative strategy for the advertiser. So it's natural, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect setup to stall as a strategy. Now, getting back to the WPP story, uh, after two hours, the first analyst said, what about the media transparency? 
and whoever was the commentator on the panel in London switched over and said, I think that can be answered by Erwin Gottlieb in New York. Erwin Gottlieb runs all the WPP media buying. Erwin? Silence. Erwin? Silence. Someone says, oh, looks like Erwin's line got cut. I'm on this call, I'm going to myself, you can't make this up. This is crazy. So we go on to the next question. Erwin comes back in five minutes. They then turn to him and say, okay, what's the answer? And he basically answered that, well, the upfront was very hectic. Uh, we did a lot of buying. We did a lot of things. And uh, there were some audits before the upfront. Uh, we'll probably see some audits now, but nothing out of the usual. So, so they, they, they are very consistent in their position that it's the other guy. We don't do it. And I, you know, I'm not singling out WPP. I'm singling out all six of them. You know, if you, if you believe the K2 report, and that's, you know, you can believe or not believe it, that it's just absurd that they're all saying it's the other guy. You know, these are, these, these were, this is an extensive investigation. Again, I encourage you to read it. Congress, Schumer from New York, he's already all over the digital fraud. He's over the bots, the, you know, the piracy. You know, there's a running joke in Washington that the most dangerous place to be is between a camera and Schumer. You know, he's, 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 he's on TV for absolutely anything. He's caught on to this. Will it go further than that? Who knows? The auditors. PwC, PwC was the auditor who basically outed IPG in 2004 when they were changed, when they, they became their new auditors. You may remember under Enron and Sarbanes-Oxley, if you're a public company, you have to periodically change auditors in order to keep the, the world honest. Well, they're the ones who came in and said, no, 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 no. You, you can't keep all those that they said $500 million. You can't keep $500 million. You've got to give it back to your clients. What is, what is PwC going to do when they audit the next holding company as the audits come up? They know, they know this, and the K2 report is out there. So they can't ignore it. I don't know what they're going to say. They have to say something. I called the, the auditing groups at, K, at, at, at PwC, at Accenture, and at Ernst & Young, who folks I know. And so I said, hey, you know, I'm just curious. So have you thought about this? What, how are you going to deal with this you know, when you do your audits? No answer. They refused to talk to me. And I, and I would have refused to talk to me because there's no good answer they could have given me. But they're going to have to deal with that. And lastly, the reason it's not going to go away is the Wall Street Journal. They've had three articles on this in, in two weeks. That's, to have three articles on the same subject matter in, in two weeks for the Wall Street Journal is, is significant. And there's another one coming out either later this week or next week as well. So in the course of four weeks, three weeks, there's going to be four articles in the Wall Street Journal. The last one was the front page. You know, so, so the Wall Street Journal is taking this very seriously. And, and when the press gets there, Fingers. And, you know, if ad ages got into ad, we could, that's, you know, okay, fine. You know, ad age loves, loves the, you know, the rag sheet and the controversy and everything else. Fine. That's not going to really make people lose too much sleep. But the journal will. When the Wall Street Journal's on it, it's going to be something that is not going to go away. So even though the, the holding companies would hope that this would kind of wash over and go away, I personally don't think it will. I think there's too many ramifications, too many players, too many things going on that this is not going to go away. And headlines like Dentsu and Facebook do not help. Uh, I thought it was hilarious that, that one of the commentators, one of the holding companies, I won't say who it is, you can read the article in the Wall Street Journal yourselves, uh, came out when they were asked about the Facebook thing. They said, oh, it doesn't, it, it's, it's no big deal for us because we have other analytics we use. What do you mean use other analytics? They, they don't let you use other analytics. So anyway, but then again, if you're sharing in the benefits, why would you want to shoot the goose that lays the golden egg? So, so there's a lot of stuff going on that's not going to go away. Uh, this really ought to, you know, I said earlier that I write novels, and I do as a sort of a pastime. This is going to be my next one. This, this is, is going to be a great novel. It's got all the things, big money and profits, obscene profits. It's got greed. It's got arrogance. It's got knights. There's a knight even in here, someone who's been knighted. 
There's market manipulation. Are there cover-ups? We don't know. You know. There's all sorts of stuff going on. It's really, it's international. It's got all the, the, the trimmings of, of a really great, great book. So maybe I'll write that and retire and write this novel. In the meantime, I'll just represent my clients on this, on this area going forward. So what's the opportunity that I see? One of the, somebody mentioned earlier that they beat Horizon uh, on, a, on a media buying arrangement for digital. That's great. I'm not saying Horizon does anything right or wrong or indifferent, but they're one of the big players, the independent big players. Um, they have a lot of media cloud, so they've undoubtedly, as someone also said, they're going to get better prices probably and things like that. The question is, what are they doing with all those revenues that get day as long as, as long as everybody else? Because, of course, we, we, all our benefits go back to the advertiser, et cetera. You know, well, that, that, that you know, may be true, may not be true. I'm not going to judge on that. But, but when you've got an international group like this that has the expertise that it has, you, you, I, I just pose the question, is there an opportunity out there in media buying, collective media buying, that gives you an opportunity to have a leg up? Because what one CMO said to me was, Doug, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to trade one crook for another crook? Because it's only six. And I said, well, you know, don't say they're crooks. It's not a good thing to say. You know, just say that they're tough contract negotiators and they don't want to be transparent. The ANA template at least causes that conversation. I mean, I, I wrote it. I don't expect a, any media uh, buying agency with a half a brain to just sign off on it. That's not the purpose of the template. The purpose of the template is to get the dialogue going so at least you know what they're not being transparent on and what they are being transparent on. Because absent that, the argument can be made that, that the job's not being done properly by the uh, by the uh, by the community. So I don't know if there's an opportunity or not. You're smarter than I am on that. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of upheaval. People are going to be starting to look for alternatives. Uh, there's one large advertiser in the Midwest uh, that is about to fire their agency over this and going to do an RFP, a new RFP with a new uh, new transparency uh, provisions in it that parrot other things. You know, th th it's changing. The world is certainly changing, and the gig is up, if if you will. But it's all going to be good. You know, thumbs up, <laughs> thumbs up all around, so we're cool, not a problem. It's going to be a wonderful place, we're going to be great, so whatever we're going to be, and uh, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't worry too much about it. Anyway, oh, well, actually, I would worry a lot about it, but that, that's, a whole different, that's a whole different discussion. Uh, so, any questions? Happy to answer questions, or I'll be around today, can uh, talk to you later if you'd like, or whatever. Anyone? Did I uh, bum you out enough? Yeah. Got the ball? He's going to catch. <laughs> you said for overtime, it's, a, it's based on the day. So if somebody works 10 hours in one day, not the week. So I just want to make sure I heard that correctly. That's right. That's, right. That's okay. two hours of overtime. So even if they work, you know, 20 hours that week and don't get their full 40 doesn't hours, matter. it doesn't matter. Can't average it out. Okay. That, a lot of people don't realize that one. Yeah, I didn't. That's for sure. So thank you for the clarification. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> there goes the payroll, huh? On the same topic, I've had a lot of questions about the best way to tr software or um, services that are helping agencies track that because it's it's not something that I think anyone really understands in depth, and the tools don't seem to be in place to follow the uh, the new legislation. I, Have you come across any any software tracking that does it by day? No, I, I have not. Um, or ways in which agencies maybe um, can look at this. The the uh, you know this is um, I know maybe some tools will come up, but right now I think it's the old uh, you know down and dirty way of just a forensic audit. 
I mean, the only way it works is if you go up to the holding company, go down, you know, the whole tree. And they obviously don't want that to happen. Although we have some that, that we had one holding company. This is kind of funny in a way. Uh, uh, they, and talk about software tools, we pushed on behalf of the client, insisting that despite whatever the contract says, had a limited audit right, that if they wanted to keep this multi-hundred million dollar account, they were going to have to allow a full audit up and down the tree. And in the beginning, they said, of course, we're your partner, we're great, whatever. Then as we got into it, and, and, and as the auditing company uh, started to ask a lot of questions, they started to resist giving certain information, which we anticipated. And we anticipated hitting this wall at some point, because we, we just didn't believe they would be as open as they claimed they would be. So their latest suggestion is that, OK, OK, we're going to give you all this data. We're going to deliver boxes of all this data to your offices. But only you can look at it. You can't let your auditors look at it. But you, you can let Reed Smith look at it. But you can't, and no one else can look at it. You might as well you know, ask me to explain the relativity. You know, I don't, what am I going to look at? A bunch of boxes of, of, of transactions? I have no idea how to go through that. Neither does my client. So another stall tactic. Ultimately, we're going to tell them that's not the case. We need to go through, you know, through, through software programs people have that can do forensic auditing and keywords and all that other kind of good stuff that, that I don't know anything about. But uh, I don't know of any specific tool, no. Find one and you're going to retire. Just a, a follow-up to that. Um, sales commissions on top of, I guess, the annual earning of someone who's non-exempt, uh, calculating overtime with a percentage of commission or anyone who's no. in the new business role? Commissions, if, if it's a true commissions on sales, um, as long as you're paying them the minimum wage and, and you know, those kinds of, of uh, situations, then I, that's generally not something that um, uh, requires any kind of, of tracking. But now don't go commission crazy, though. And just remember, pigs get slaughtered. Yeah, any other questions? Or, or rats too, or guinea pig zoo. I don't know what that is, gerbils. Yeah, there's one in the back over in the corner. Here you go, Charlie. On the uh, exempt issue, would uh, front and back end developers and technical directors and quality assurance people and uh, what's your opinion? It would really depend, it would really depend upon their role. Um, it, you know, if, if they're the head of that, you know, and they're responsible again for hiring and firing and supervising and all those kinds of indicia, they would be exempt. If they're kind of the, you know, the, the, the crew that uh, follows the orders and goes out and, and handles these kinds of things, no, they would not be exempt. Even if they're writing code, which is definitely... I'm, I'm sorry, i got two people talking. ...computer-related? They're writing code, which would, to me, be... Oh, oh I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hit that part of it. If yeah. they're writing code and they're experts in writing code, yeah they would be exempt. That, that would be the kind of computer individuals, as opposed to like the help desk. The help desk doesn't write code, generally speaking. Yeah. Anything else? Well, thanks for listening. Hope you got something out of it.